Welcome to the Leash Offaly Children and Young People Services Committee podcast. This six-part spectrum series is about life on the spectrum and the many issues and challenges this brings to everyone involved. On the different episodes, we speak with both international and local experts on a range of autism-related topics. We hope you enjoy the series. In this episode, we hear from autism expert Dr. Peter Mervulin about the theory of mind and context blindness in ASD. We also hear from Dr. Peter Vermoulin in conversation with Katie Dunn with questions for him about his presentation. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, I am Peter Vermoulin from Autism in Context. And in this session, I will talk about theory of mind in autism and especially how it is linked to contextual sensitivity and context blindness. Let's start first with what exactly is a theory of mind? Well, it is used now a lot in the area of autism and in psychology in general, but the term was coined in 1978 by two researchers, David Premack and Guy Woodruff, in their research on chimpanzees. And, and they were curious to find out whether chimpanzees could be able to infer the intention of a human being. A human being they saw on a video, for instance, a person trying to escape from a cage and did not have a key. Primak and Woodruff were interested to know, would chimpanzees be able to infer the intention and therefore give proof of the ability to attribute mental states? Now, mostly when people talk about theory of mind, they're talking about the ability to know what somebody else is feeling or what somebody else is experiencing. But it's, it's about every mental state, not just emotions. It's also the ability to, to, to know what other people think, what they know or do not know yet, what their intentions are, what their desires are. So everything that is kind of hidden under our skull the mental states. And, and why is it called theory of mind? Well, because just as in any theory, a theory is meant to be able to predict things in the world. So a theory of mind is something we use to predict the behavior of fellow human beings, but also other living beings, because we also uh, use a theory of mind to understand what our dog is wanting or what our cat is trying to do. So um, we, we, we use it in order to be able to predict behavior and therefore theory of mind is a quite important ability because without a theory of mind, one would be unable to predict the behavior of other human beings, which would make the behavior of our fellow human beings very unpredictable, very strange, ununderstandable. Okay, theory of mind, coined by Primack and Woodruff in 1978, 
in the area of research on chimpanzees, on primates, and not even children, but it was soon picked up by developmental psychologists. And in developmental psychology, psychologists were eager to know, okay, chimpanzees seem to have it. At what age do babies start knowing what other people want and think and so on? So gradually, the whole area of research developed into this thing named theory of mind and now people use all kind of other words or terms to actually refer to more or less the same thing some people talk about mind reading or mentalizing you heard the word mental mental states and mind reading reading another person's mind some people also refer to these ability as folk psychology because you don't have to study psychology at university to be able to try to figure out what other people are wanting or feeling or thinking so this is called the folk or the layman psychology and it's also reflected in the term mirror neurons because when it comes to theory of mind there are actually two theories uh, one says that theory of mind is making a kind of a simulation in your own head of what other people are thinking and feeling. So mirror neurons is actually, it's kind of the mirroring the other person's brain, and that's the simulation theory. Another theory that says that theory of mind is actually a theory. It's thinking about what is going on in somebody else's head. Okay, so this is the concept of theory of mind. We know it starts developing very early in age, and at a given moment, it was picked up by the autism research community because one of the things that is known to be characteristic for autism is the difficulties in social interaction. And scientists start to figure out where are these difficulties coming from? And one of the hypotheses mid-80s was maybe it is because autistic people are unable to figure out what's going on in other people's minds. Therefore, cannot predict other people's behavior. Therefore, cannot react swiftly and adequately to other people's behavior. And that was the hypothesis mid-80s. So almost 10 years after Premack and Woodruff coined the term. And yes, soon evidence was given for a so-called lack of theory of mind. One of the first to show this was Simon Baron Cohen. In those days, he was still a student um, studying, making his PhD research uh, under the supervision of Uta Frit in London. And they used a test that was uh, already used at uh, the beginning of the 80s by Joseph Perlmer and Heinz Wimmer, a so-called false belief test. And this test has become very famous all over the world and is being used all over the world in diagnosis and research. It is the Sally Ann test. And it's a false belief test because it's all about a girl named Sally who has a false belief about reality. And the story is played with little puppets and a marble. So Sally has a basket and then there's the other puppet named Anne. She has a box. Sally has also a marble. She puts the marble away into her basket and covers the marble um, and then goes out. Now while she's out, Anne steals the marble from Sally, puts it in her box and closes the box. Now Sally comes back and then we have to ask the control question, where was the marble in the beginning where is the marble now now where will sally 
look for her marble. That's what Simon Baron Cohen did. He played with small puppets and a marble. And well, his research showed that autistic children, even compared to children with intellectual disabilities, seem to have difficulties to figure out where Sally would look for her marble because they answered in the box, which is where the ball is. However, Sally never saw the ball moving from the basket to the box. So in her mind, the marble is still in the basket, which is actually not true. And therefore, this is known as a false belief test. And children on the autism spectrum performed as well than even children with intellectual disabilities. Now, soon it became clear that the salientist is developmentally situated at the age of around four to five years, which meant that older autistic children, more able ones, well, they gave the right answer to the false belief test of Sally Ann. They said that Sally would look for her marble in the baskets. So therefore, researchers started to develop more advanced tests for theory of mind, such as the strange stories test that you see on the right. In the strange story test, the, the, the main characters, the main character always say something that is not true. For instance, here Peter thinks his aunt looks silly with the, the hat she's wearing, with the old hat. But when she asks him, how do you like my new hat? He says, oh, it's very nice. Hmm? So the strange stories test is all about things like white lies, uh, irony, um, even lying, but also pretend play. And uh, Frankie Happy, who used the strange stories test, she discovered that children who were able to resolve the more simple test for theory of mind, well, did not succeed in the more advanced one, but still adults could solve and could do this test rather well. So the group around Simon Baron Cohen developed an even more advanced test for theory of mind, known as the reading the mind in the eyes test, which you can see here. And all you see is a couple of eyes. And then you're supposed to figure out how these people are feeling. Um, is the woman on the left, is she panicked, incredulous, despondent, or interested? Not easy. Not even for people who are neurotypicals. And again, they discovered, the researchers discovered that autistic individuals have difficulties performing on these tests. And that led to the hypothesis, yes, the social interaction difficulties we see in autism are the consequence of a so-called lack of theory of mind, or let's say in, in, in another version, a delay in the development of theory of mind. And immediately that led to different practices that led to practices such as emotion recognition training. And because if autistic children had difficulties figuring out what other people were feeling, we need to train them. It did not only lead to emotion recognition training, there were also all kinds of theory of mind trainings. For instance, the group around Simon Baron-Cohen developed the transporters, which is very attractive to children. It's using the special interest of some children on the autism spectrum for trains and, 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 and buses and, and cars and, and so on, using vehicles and, and then facial expressions. But Michelle Winner uh, in the United States developed program social thinking and in the Netherlands, um, Pim Stierneman developed a theory 
with mind training to help children to figure out what other people are thinking, feeling, etc. So this led to a lot of practices, but there are some critical remarks to make about this default approach. And the default approach being social interaction, difficulties and odds are not a consequence of a lack of theory of mind. So let's therefore train this deficit, this lack of theory of mind. After a while, scientists were interested in, do these trainings really have an effect? And they did some effect research. And well, the results were rather disappointing because studies showed that these kind of trainings, emotional recognition training and theory of mind trainings, did not really make a difference in real social life. For instance, Sue Fletcher Watson uh, from Scotland did a review study. So she summarized the results of 22 studies with almost 700 uh, children and youngsters involved, all theory of mind trainings. And she said, well, you can teach theory of mind abilities, but it seems that there is no evidence for these skills to be generalized into real life other than the training session. And this is something that Pim Steenman also discovered in the Netherlands. So he looked into a theory of mind training for children and did a randomized control trial. And what he discovered is that after the training, the children who were in the training group did not do better on emotional consciousness, did not do better on self-reported empathy, did not do better in terms of their social behavior as measured by uh, the children's social behavior questionnaire, CSBQ. The only difference between the group who did have the training and the group who didn't have had the training was that the children had had training performed better on a theory of mind tests. So there was a, well, they were better at solving a theory of mind test and doing theory of mind test, but they were, their social competence was not improved in real life. And the same was found for so-called ER, emotion recognition trainings, that all these interventions, well, this, until now, there's few indications that the training effects of these trainings are generalized to daily social interaction. So what's going on here? I was curious seeing this. Was it, there must be something going on here. And, well, actually, you don't have to look very far. Uh, it all comes down to the fact that the training situations were far away from real life. There's a huge difference between an emotion recognition training and real life, between theory of mind training and real life. And just to make it a little bit concrete, when people want to find out how somebody else feels, do they first fill in a thinking sheet or a worksheet? No, they don't. Do people in general only start thinking about the mental state of somebody else when somebody asks them to do? For instance, when a parent is at home and the children come home from school, do they need a person saying, think, what are your children feeling today? How was their day? No, you do it spontaneously. And how many people do you know have a face like that, which is one of the faces used in emotional recognition training. This is so artificial. And I think there's a lot of differences between the test situation and real life. 
know, to start with, test situations are very structured, real life scales. We do know that autistic individuals perform better in structured situations. It's often it's with artificial materials, stories like puppets having a marble hiding in their baskets. How, how often does that happen in real life? It's a cute reaction, while in real life it's spontaneous. Now we do. And the biggest difference is, well, training situations and theory of mind tests are often a contextual, while in real life, human behavior and mental states are always embedded in a context. And in a given moment, there was even this kind of confusing findings of researchers saying, well, you know, autistic people, they do have a theory of mind. One of them was Herbert Ruiers in, in Belgium, in Ghent. Another one was Annelies Peck and Sander Beheer in the Netherlands, who used this so-called advanced test for theory of mind, the reading the mind in the eyes test that I just showed. And Herbert and Annelies and Sander uh, and even people in France discovered that uh, autistic adults, more able ones, they performed as well on this reading the mind in the eye test as neurotypicals. Well, actually, I should say they performed as badly as neurotypicals, because neurotypicals have a lot of difficulties uh, doing this test as well. And then, then everybody was surprised, saying, oh, we always thought that autistic people did not have theory of mind. And now they showed to have a theory of mind, and they perform rather well on even advanced tests. But, you know, this is a very acontextual test. How often in real life do we meet a couple of eyes, just a couple of eyes in black and white? So, Simon Berengan, he, he found out about these results and he thought, maybe something else is going on here. It's not just the ability of mind reading. Maybe it's something else. So, a group of PhD students um, from Israel around Simon Berenkahan, University of Cambridge, developed a more contextualized task for theory of mind, named reading the mind in films test. And what is reading the mind in films test? It's all about a short video, and then they push the pause button, and then ask the participants in research, how do you think at the end of this scene, this person will be feeling? And what we discovered and that was found in other research projects as well, that autistic individuals who perform pretty well on this so-called static and acontextual tasks, like reading the mind in the eye test, which is a very clear example of a laboratory test, a lab test, that they had difficulties performing in a more dynamic, naturalistic task with video. And the same is true for emotion recognition. A group of researchers in Belgium discovered that there were no differences in emotion recognition in children with autism spectrum disorders. They could, you know, pictures like this, how does this man feel? There's many autistic children who can give you the right answer here and say, well, this man seems to be very pleased, seems to be happy. The difference, however, is not just labeling the emotion, but knowing where the emotion comes from, and emotions always come from context. So the moment we use contextualized pictures of emotions, and, and to avoid misunderstanding, this is a picture that was not used in research. Telling that the man is smiling and that he looks pretty happy is not a big issue 
for autistic children. Knowing why the man is happy, that's where the problem is. So we come to context. Context seems to be the pivotal variable in this story. And that's what Agustin Ibanez from uh, Argentina found out. He was also curious to find out what's going on with this theory of mind in autism. So what he did is he, he, he looked for all the available tests for social cognition. Social cognition is social knowledge. And he used a whole battery of tests and, and used the battery both with autistic adults and non-autistic adults. And what he found was this, that on all those tests that did not require contextual sensitivity, tests where you can solve the task purely by reasoning or by following rules, that there was no difference between the autistic and the non-autistic group. For instance, there was a moral judgment task in there where you listen to a short story where somebody does something and then you have to tell whether that is okay to do or not okay to do. Things like stealing, killing, um, or giving, uh, helping somebody else. You know, the moment somebody on the autism spectrum knows the moral rules, then there's no difference between autistic and non-autistic individuals. So in those tests, there was no difference in the performance. However, Augustine Ibanez, he saw that autistic individuals had difficulties in all those tests where you needed to use context in an unconscious way. So all the tests that involved implicit coding and coding of context were a difficulty. Like, um, for instance, the faux pas test. A faux pas test, uh, faux pas is a French word for, let's say, a social blunder, making a social mistake, um, saying something that could be offending another person, but without the intent to offend. Now, there isn't a fixed rule for when things are offending or when not. It all depends on context. On those tests, autistic individuals had difficulties. So this brings me to context blindness. Okay. The human brain is context sensitive. And what we see in autism, and I won't go into all the details of the research, I just stick to theory of mind, is that autistic individuals have difficulties to use context unconsciously and spontaneously because there's no problem with the conscious use of context, but the unconscious and spontaneous use of context to generate predictions about the world and also to cope with the prediction errors. And since theory of mind is all about predicting other people's behavior, we need context to predict. Now, let me, instead of talking about all the science here, let me give concrete examples. Remember the emotion recognition training? You, you can bet on it. The moment you get a diagnosis of autism as a child, well, very soon there will be a lady or a man sitting together with you at a table and you will be looking at pictures of human faces, and then you will have to learn to say happy, sad, etc. And the idea behind it is that we recognize emotions by watching other people's face. Like in this case, the mouth, her mouth is open, her eyebrows are up, um, eyes are quite open. Oh, she must be surprised, or this man must be pleased or happy. Now, the thing is that although this is universal and being used all over the globe, I've seen it in many countries, this is not how emotion recognition works. Uh, for two reasons. First of all, we never see facial expressions out of context. You never see a head just out of any context. The second thing is, 
Contrary to what many people think, there's no fixed relationship between a facial expression and an emotion. Facial expressions are inherently ambiguous. And this is not only true for, let's say, subtle expressions like the one you see on the Mona Lisa. This is also true for very expressive expressions, very explicit expressions. These are all tennis players who either just lost a very important game or just won a very important game. Now try to figure out who won and who lost. It's impossible to say without context. And as you can see, these facial expressions are not very subtle. They are reflecting a rather strong emotion. So plus meant he or she won the game minus he or she lost. So without context, it's hard to say what somebody's feeling. The, the woman on the left, she looks sad if you just look at the face, but if you have context, you know she's not sad. And the woman on the right, there's not even emotion involved, only onions. So it's context that influences the way we try to guess what other people are feeling. And emotions are not written on a face. So we, we predict actually how somebody feels based on context. We don't recognize emotions by watching faces. To put it more simple, we don't read emotions from faces. We read emotions into faces based on context. And context is actually more important than the face. Because, and this is Dutch research, if we put the human brain in front of a dilemma where the brain has to choose between context and face in order to figure out what somebody's feeling, it will choose context. So they did that with, with pictures like this one where the, the facial expression is expressing a different emotion than the one that is connected to the context. Somebody points a gun at your hand, well, I think most of us will be terribly afraid and not disgusted with what the facial expression is telling here. So that means in a context that is connected to fear, even if there is an angry facial expression or some facial expression is connected to anger, we will see a person that is afraid and the other way around. That means, and I know this is counterintuitive, especially if you look at it long time, like in this PowerPoint, that if you show children pictures like this one, that children, when asked, how does this girl feel, will not say sad, but happy. And I know this is very strange, but you need to know that in real life, there's not a picture that you can watch for 30 35 seconds, it all goes faster. And this is what the, the American Dina Tell and Denise Davison did. They showed pictures incongruence, conflicting pictures like the one with the girl, to children with, or without, with and without autism. Or what they discovered is that around 90% of the typically developing children, that's where TD stands for in the graph, they said that the girl was happy because they connect emotions to context. Receiving a gift is what makes people happy in general. Well, as long as the present is something they want, obviously. But almost 70% of the autistic children said the girl was sad. So probably because they were trained to watch the face. Now, what does this mean for supporting autistic individuals, for understanding the emotions of other people, that we should not throw faces at them, but that we should teach autistic people to predict emotions using context, not faces. And, and that means, and it looks a bit strange in the beginning, that we should start from context and then put the 
phase that, that reflects the emotion into the context. So we read emotions into phases. So here, for instance, about a boy who's being bullied by an older uh, adolescent and how do children feel when they are being bullied. Or here you have Lisa. Lisa just received, she wanted earrings and she gets, well, earrings for her birthday. Wow, how would Lisa feel now? And this is a different way of teaching theory of mind, a more realistic way. And it's all about context. Now, that's for those who want to train emotion recognition to children, youngsters on the autism spectrum. Before we start doing that kind of training, there's maybe something else we need to say about theory of mind in autism. The first question is not how should we teach theory of mind. The first question is who actually needs theory of mind training? And here I'm referring to uh, what Damien Milton has coined as the double empathy problem. It was said from the 80s on that autistic people had a deficit in their theory of mind, meaning that they had difficulties understanding what other people were thinking and feeling. But you could also turn it around because, you know, understanding each other, that's bidirectional. So you could also say that it's the neurotypicals and the non-autistic people who lack a theory of autistic mind and therefore does not understand the autistic experience, do not understand how autistic people can feel, how they experience the world. And the question is then, who needs theory of mind training? I think if the problem is bidirectional, that both should be trained, that means that indeed autistic people can learn about how neurotypicals think and feel about the world, but simultaneously the neurotypicals should learn about the autistic experience. And, and until now all those theory of mind trainings are only about teaching autistic people to understand the non-autistics, and I think that is not fair. Moreover, it's as often meant to let the autistic people adapt to the neurotypicals. So, who needs theory of mind training? And even if we would do theory of mind training, there's another thing that is important to mention about theory of mind and context. What we have learned from developmental psychology is that it is pretty hard to understand what somebody else is feeling if you do not have had the experience yourself. It's difficult to recognize sadness in another person if you don't even know what sadness is, if you've never been sad yourself. So you can only understand others if you have understood the emotion, the thought, the intention yourself. However, all current interventions, they start with understanding the other person rather than supporting autistic people to understand themselves to develop a theory of own mind because what few people know is that theory of mind is not just the ability to attribute mental states to other people but it's also the, the ability to attribute mental states to oneself which is known as theory of own mind and we even use the same neural circuits in our brain to think about ourselves as when the ones we use when we think about other people. So what is this theory of own mind? It's the ability to read and to understand your own thoughts, your own feelings, 
your own ideas, your own beliefs, your own expectations. And here too, all the words and all the terms are being used. Some people call it introspection. Some people use the word self-knowledge or self-awareness or self-understanding or reflecting on yourself. Now, there's plenty of research showing that autistic individuals have difficulties figuring out what other people are thinking, feeling, wanting, etc. But if the same neural circuits are being used, we can then expect autistic people to also have difficulties representing their own beliefs and their and actually research, amongst them studied done by Frankie Hapagan, shows that sometimes it's even harder for autistic people to tell what they themselves are feeling and thinking rather than think, telling what other people are thinking. Because with other people, you at least have some visual input, for instance, like their behavior, what they're doing. Now, one important thing here is, and that's where many of the, the, the trainings go wrong, I think, is that we think that knowing a word for a feeling is similar to understanding the feeling and that's not true many of these children have to learn to say angry happy sad when they see the, the facial expressions it's not because they are correct in naming the pictures that they know the feeling behind it and i can do that with a feeling that is well, actually only known by dutch people people in the netherlands and also a little bit in flanders and that's the feeling of gezellig that's a dutch word it's an emotion that is typical for Dutch people and well, rather unknown in the rest of the world. Okay, here you see people who experience gezellig hate. They are gezellig. Okay, now I could show you pictures like this, 20, 30, and then ask you, what is it? And you could say gezellig. And then I would ask you, is this also gezellig? And some people will say, well, no, because if we go back, Gazelle is all about being in group, it's all about having marshmallows at a barbecue, it's probably connected to parties, to, to eating, to drinking. This woman is not eating, not drinking, she's alone, she's just at home reading um, a newspaper, not a newspaper uh, book or something like that. But this is also Gazelle. And it's hard to understand that two photographs that are so different still can reflect the same emotion. So there's a difference between Knowing the words, words, which is known as semantic knowledge, and being able to differentiate the emotion. I was once with a, with a, a young autistic woman on a late night, night show in Belgium, on Belgian television, and the interviewer asked her, oh, you're single? Yes. You've always been single? Yes, yes. Ever fallen in love? And she said, I don't know if I've ever fallen in love. And then he was kind of confused. How can you not know? if you have ever fallen in love or not. And she says, well, you know, I have all these kind of sensations, but I don't always know what they mean. I ask my girlfriends, what do you feel when you fall in love? And then they talk about butterflies in the stomach. And I do know I'm that smart that they don't mean it literally. But still, when I ask them, how long do you feel it? And, and where exactly they can't answer it. And I have the same emotions and I don't know what they mean. So in order to know your own experience, your own mental state, you need to have good knowledge for, to start with about the bodily signals. And this is called interoception. Um, interoception is not well known, but we do know that interoception is affected in autism. For instance, when we ask autistic and non-autistic children to estimate their, uh, the rate of their heartbeat, 
how fast is your heartbeat, we see that autistic children are less accurate than non-autistic children. So even trying to figure out a very clear bodily signal like heartbeat, it's one of the less subtle ones, is already difficult for autistic children. And, and other examples of this interoceptive difficulties are the lack of awareness of hunger that we sometimes even see in more able adults on the autism spectrum, not knowing when they are thirsty, not feeling pain, and then it is also linked to, for instance, the toileting problems we see in some children on the autism spectrum, not knowing when your bladder is full or um, when your bowels are full. And therefore, I can highly recommend the work by Kelly Mahler, who works in a very playful way with children on, on learning to read their own body, because this is the basic of understanding emotions. You cannot understand emotions if you can't read bodily signals. But it's not just about reading your own body. Again, context comes into the picture because in order to recognize what the bodily signals mean, you need again to be able to make use of context. So you need to be able to interpret the bodily signals in context, just the way as we need context to be able to recognize emotions in other people. Now imagine, for instance, that there is an increased heart rate. You hear your heart beat faster. You have this strange feeling in your stomach area. It's like pinched. Your, your breathing goes faster, deeper. You, you feel aroused. You feel your muscles are tense. Now, what exactly are you feeling then? Okay. Well, it could be, it could be many different feelings. And here I'm referring to what Donna Williams wrote in her book 25 years ago. She said, I'm troubled by underfirings, Overfirings and misfirings. Underfirings means that sometimes my brain doesn't pick up the bodily signals, like not feeling that I'm hungry. I'm hungry, but it seems like the signals don't get through to my brain. So there's an underfiring, underwarning. Sometimes there's an overfiring. I can be overwhelmed by a certain emotion. Although people around me say, well, you're kind of a drama queen. It's not that huge. Um, she says, no, I'm, I'm just, it's like a tsunami of uh, emotion. Um, and then she said, the worst thing is misfirings. And then she talked about a thing that happened to her, that she had all the body sickness that we just mentioned. The increased breathing, increased heart rate, you know, the pinched feeling in the stomach, being sweaty, being aroused, um, muscle. And that's, you know, those bodily sickness can be connected to anxiety because that's what happens with your body when you're afraid, when you're anxious. But this is exactly what's going on when you're sexually attracted as well. That's a sexual arousal. And she said, it happened to me that she realized only afterwards that she was sexually attracted to another human being, but her brain kind of misinterpreted as anxiety. So she actually hit the person that she was attracted to. And, and this is called a misfiring. And all because her brain could not put the bodily signals into context. And I remember a, a young man who was undoing activities for adults on the autism spectrum, psychoeducational activities. And at a given moment, one of the adults who came straight out of psychiatry had been in psychiatry for many months and he participated in our activities. And he, well, it was a three day course. And around noon, he said, I think I'm a bit depressed. It's, it's a bit too much to me. 
all of our adults have the ability to leave the room whenever they feel necessary. Um, so I said, okay, you can go uh, to your room, relax, and maybe you pick up and, and, and participate again in the afternoon. But after two days, we, we kind of recognized that he said it around lunch, but in the afternoon he was quite happy and, and quite active, uh, actively participating. And we thought, is this really depression? And then, and then one of my colleagues who uh, has diabetes says, I think he was just low in sugar or something like that. That's not depression. Uh, he didn't feel well, but probably it's because he was low in sugar. So now with this adult, when he says he's a bit depressed, we give him uh, some cereal or, or, or Coca-Cola to drink. And then he says, wow, I'm feeling better now. You know, again, he has the body signals, but cannot put them in the right context. So I think before we start teaching autistic people to recognize emotions and mental states in other people, the first thing is let's support autistic people to recognize and understand their own bodily signals because that's important for later on understanding other people. How can you understand other people if you can't understand your own body? It's important for your health. It's not just about social interaction. It's about health as well. It's also, you know, it's an empowering way because if you can recognize I'm not feeling well anymore, maybe you can learn to stand up for yourselves and say, wait a minute, this is kind of uncomfortable for me. Stop here. And this is also very important for emotion regulation because you cannot regulate what you cannot detect. I see all these emotion regulation programs, but nobody wonders are the children able to recognize their inner state? You cannot regulate if you can't detect it. And to end with, and this is also very important, you know, all these trainings on theory of mind and even theory of our mind, I think we should teach people, not just autistic people, all people, that it is also okay not to know what other people feel and think. You know, that's one of the disadvantages of having a an autism label that everybody puts kind of the demands up higher for you because suddenly you need to know always what other people are thinking and feeling just as if neurotypicals always know what other people are thinking and feeling it's okay not to know and it's up to the other ones if they want the autistic person to understand their feelings and their thoughts well then they should communicate about it and it's also okay not to know what you feel I'm not always able to tell what I'm feeling sometimes I think there's something going wrong with me. I don't even know what it is, but that's okay. And it is also okay not to be in the mood for sharing your feelings because I see so many schools where autistic children, when they come in, they have to say whether they are happy, sad. Come on, neurotypicals, don't do that when they enter the office in the morning. No manager says, are you feeling happy, sad today? And some, it's okay to share it, but it's okay not to be in the mood to share your feelings and your thoughts. Okay, thank you very much, and I sincerely hope you could put all the information in context. Thank you very much. It's lovely to meet you, Peter. Should I call you Peter or Dr. Vermeulen? Yeah, what would you prefer? No, no doctor, just okay. Peter. <laughs> just Peter. Okay, it's lovely to, to meet you, Peter, and uh, thank you for your talk it was very very interesting and i hope the people who are viewing it and listening to it at home got like as much out of it as i did i thought it was very interesting so just have a, a few things like i just want to like have a little bit of a, a chit chat about what you were talking about so 
so I guess the, the first thing that I thought was interesting about your talk was the, the false belief test with the Sally Ann dolls and how you got, how when people on the spectrum like got older, you can kind of figure out how to solve it. And I think it, it makes sense that um, these kinds of tests could be solved with like logic and like reasoning is something that I, I found pretty interesting. There's a lot of misunderstandings about theory of mind and autism, I think. And there's, there's this one line as like autistic people have no theory of mind. And I think that's, that, that's absurd. Every human being is more complicated than just a one-liner. And this is also true about theory of mind and theory of own mind. So I think we should be more nuanced. And another thing that I learned from this history of, of theory of mind research, that in the beginning, I, I was one of those people that said, yeah, finally we got an explanation for autism. They can't read other people's minds. And then I met autistic people, I think, but they can. <laughs> What's going on here? And then I realized afterwards they can, but they maybe use a different route to get there. But then the end result is what counts, isn't it? So there's maybe two ways to know what somebody is feeling or thinking or whatsoever. There's the intuition and then there's the logical reasoning about it. But if you come up with, at the end, something that makes you connect to that person, who cares which way you chose? So I see this not just as a deficit, that's what I mean. I see this sometimes as a way to compensate for something that is maybe difficult, but if the end result is the same, then I call it an alternative route to mind reading. Yeah, it's like how the theory of mind training and like the emotional recognition in like a test situation if you see like the happy faces, you can see, ah, that's a happy face. You see a frowny face. Oh, that person's sad. Where in reality, nobody's, when they're sad, it's just like a little frowny face. It's all about like using the context and like the logic, like, well, I know something sad happened to this person and they must be feeling sad then. Yeah. And in, in that way, I, I think it's also knowing the, the, the traditional scripts are not an issue for autistic people. I think most autistic people know that if you lose some money, you love, or if, if your cat or your dog dies and you love your cat and your dog, then that people are sad. I think that that's no issue. And some of these theory of mind trainings do that. And they, they teach the things that are already obvious to, to autistic people. What I think is, is needed is the understanding that as long as things are, um, I would say, predictable in the script that autistic people can learn those scripts just like any other human, but that the difficulties are everything that are exceptions to the scripts. And that's the one that can, that can be confusing to autistic people. Like, like yesterday, um, somebody who's now divorced, I think most people would say, that's sad. If, if a relationship breaks up and, and the autistic person said, I'll feel sorry for you. And that person said, you don't have to be sorry. I'm happy she left. Uh, so you see, it's the exceptions to the rules that are challenging to autistic people. It's not the rules. Yeah. I guess it's uh, a lot of people on the spectrum very good at, at following rules and understanding structures of rules. And it's the challenge comes where in, in social situations, I find more often than not, rules are broken than uh, adhered to. Yeah, I, I remember that uh, 
Temple Grandin, in her book on social rules, the first rule is there is no rule. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing about social interaction that human beings are very unpredictable. They cannot be put into rules. Well, I suppose uh, there's almost certain rules for different contexts. I know if some of my friends may, might behave differently than some of my other peers. Like if they say something, I know that they might need, mean something else by it just because of how well I know them. So almost goes yeah, back and, to context and, then. Well, it's context. And indeed, the, the more familiar the context is, the less difference there is between autistic and non-autistic people. Because the same is, I, I know have, well, I, there's autistic adults that I know already for more than 25 years now. Not only have I learned to read their mind better in those 25, but they have learned to read my mind better as well because they know my context more better. I'm, I became a familiar context to them. So I think this is, what I learned from that is that Sometimes we need to be patient with each other. I think there's often, the, the, this theory of mind training, often behind it to me is a lack of patience. Saying so you need to follow the training now rather than saying, you know what, we'll give you time. And the moment you will learn other people better, like you, you know your friends better than I do. So I think you're way better at mind reading your friends than I would if I would meet them. And, you know, in that way, and, and that's also what science is. Autistic people might need a little bit more time here in the mind reading. That's, I think, what, what is the difference between uh, autistic and non-autistic people. The fast intuition hmm, is, is a little bit more affected in, in autism. But people can learn. And, and I think it's a, a little bit silly to take children and young people out of their common context, hmm, um, and put them in an artificial training session where they need to do theory of mind training. If they could learn it in real life, for instance, you see these trainings that prepare autistic young people for relating to colleagues at work. Now, to be honest, Katie, um, I never had training at university how to relate to colleagues at work. Where did I learn to relate to my colleagues at work? by just being together with my colleagues. And so I think we should stop putting autistic people in all kinds of interventions that are artificial and start from the context. Okay, if, if you would say sometimes I misunderstand my friends, then okay, we could start from your context. That is also functional to you because it needs to be functional to you if I do a training with you just as I want people to do things to me that are functional to me. And a lot of these trainings are artificial and non-functional, I think. I agree. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Because uh, I, I always remember basically the one thing that I did in like primary school resource teaching was learning all these archaic old like idioms that no young person my age <laughs> I'd ever heard them use. It did work out well for my English exams in school because a lot of examiners really liked them. but in a social context it made absolutely zero sense and it would have made more sense to say what young people like your age what do they say that you don't understand you don't understand their turns of phrases and try to teach them to me but I think it was just the idea of well I of people on the spectrum don't understand idioms and things like that so we should teach them that it's not functional to, to the context of mm. my day-to-day -day life 
Indeed, there is research that says that autistic people have, have difficulties understanding idioms, but then start from their needs and saying, did anyone say anything to you that sounded like absurd? Like, okay, take the typical example that I think every autistic boring girl knows. Uh, it's raining cats and dogs. I think there's no autistic people who really think there are cats <laughs> and dogs falling from the sky. But whoever uses that, is it functional to learn about this? Start from, okay, did you hear people say things that at first hearing or first sight looked very absurd to you? And then maybe it's an idiom. Okay, and then you can But what I would prefer instead of teaching about idioms, I would prefer some teaching about slang that young people use. Wouldn't that be more functional? Yes. Then it comes to tricky area, isn't it? As a yeah. teacher, you start, okay, let's start teaching about the four-letter words, which I think... <laughs> Can be functional, isn't it's, it? It's functional. Whether it or not teachers would want to be discussing with small children. <laughs> no, okay, you shouldn't start with small children. Small children. At a given age, yeah. at a given age, they hear those words. Yeah. You, you can't you can't pretend as if autistic people live in a bubble disconnected from the world and then start from your theoretical knowledge about autism and start teaching from that. That does not make sense to me. Mm. I kind of I really liked uh, the part of your talk where you were saying I think you mentioned the double empathy problem the idea that neurotypical society is saying to uh, autistic people oh here's the things that you find difficult and you should learn how to do it within our structures where in reality it would make a lot more sense if everybody would just try to understand each other whether uh, neurotypical people understanding people on the spectrum and people on the spectrum understanding neurotypical people it would just be a lot better if everybody had theory of each other's minds i suppose yeah the, the term was coined by damien milton uh, an autistic researcher in the uk um but i think he's right and it's ju not just about neurotypicals and autistic people i think you know as if neurotypicals never misunderstand each other yeah that's another thing <laughs> it's only you know it's the autistic people who have the misunderstandings but just as if neurotypicals always understand each other. I, I think that's not true. So the double empathy problem is actually playing a role in every interaction, whether it's between two neurotypicals, between a neurotypical and an autistic person, between two autistic persons. I've seen misunderstandings between autistic people as well. Why wouldn't that happen? It's normal as a human being. We can never be perfect in mind reading we should start, you know, that's sometimes a test that I do with my uh, audience, neurotypicals, uh, parents, teachers, professionals. And I, I ask them, how many times do you think neurotypicals are correct in defining the thoughts, ideas, and feelings of another person? That has been studied. It's named the empathy accuracy. Uh, you know, most neurotypicals overestimate their own mind reading <laughs> abilities. They say, well, I think I'm right about half of the time, 60%. I think it's more close to 20% than to 50%. <laughs> but that's that's okay to me because that's what those, you know, if we would never misunderstand each other, well, social interaction would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? Because you yeah. would always know what another person thinks. Hmm? We would not fall in love anymore. We would not argue anymore. It would be a pretty boring planet, I think, if we would always be perfect in mind reading. So I think this is part of the social game as well. The only difference is that it shouldn't cause stress. Uh, 
So my concern is not so much what's the level of theory of mind of someone. I'm not interested. Whether that's high or low, why measure it? What I am concerned about is, is somebody in stress or is somebody feeling uncertain? Is somebody saying, I have troubles? Um, that's what I'm interested in. And if then I can set up a training that could improve your mind reading so you get better connected to your friends, for instance, then it's functional again. But not about let's increase someone's level of theory of mind. That doesn't make sense to me. I understand what you're saying. I think that that makes sense to me. And, and another part that I found interesting uh, in what you're saying is the idea of a kind of a difficulty in the theory of your own mind. I think that kind of resonated a lot with me. I feel like, especially your story about uh, the, the uh, man who uh, around lunchtime every day, he would say, oh, I think I might be depressed. And then turns out just had low blood sugar. Uh, I feel like uh, I, at any given moment in time, I'm like, oh, I have a headache. I, I feel unwell. I'm always like saying to my mom, I, I don't think I feel well, but I don't know what's happening. I was thinking this idea that a lot of like people who aren't on the spectrum find it difficult to understand how people on the spectrum are feeling and vice versa. I was thinking perhaps could that be because maybe people on the spectrum are not able to articulate what they're feeling, how they're like thinking and how can how can someone else understand it if, if you can barely understand it? One of the things is it's not just about communication, Katie, I think. Um, it's Part is communication, and therefore I think it's good at young age to start teaching autistic children the different names and words for different bodily sensations you can get. Um, but it's not because you have a word for that, that you can recognize the emotional state, for instance, or the body bodily signal so i think all kind of activities that that help autistic children to learn to read their own body hmm, are very helpful and that is not necessary psychotherapy or counseling and that that you know how do you learn about your body by doing bodily exercises and therefore i'm a big fan of all kind of play you know, it's by playing um, that by doing physical activities that you learn about your own body, but also something that that I think parents can do at young age, give the vocabulary and, and say maybe the same was with you that you say, I don't feel very well, but that your mother could make a smart guess about yeah. what, what's happening with you. And that's what I like that other people say, okay, it's okay if we do not know what's happening with you, but together we know more than just one. So let's find out together. And I think that's something that, again, for me too, sometimes helps. You know, I don't have a diagnosis of autism, but sometimes I feel like I'm not feeling well, but I don't know what's happening to me. And then my wife says, I know, you're just tired. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's very helpful to me because she gives me a name. And if we could do that, support each other, Sometimes autistic people are could be the source also of helping of helping neurotypicals because my experience is that some autistic people are quite accurate observers of behavior. And then sometimes it's the autistic person who says, Peter, are you tired? Then they're, they're less sure than neurotypicals. Say, no, I don't think so. Why do you? Well, you're walking slower than you usually do. I think, wow, you notice that. And I never noticed this myself. Maybe, yeah, maybe I am tired. 
The thing is that the difference is that autistic people are often more uncertain. Neurotypicals often are a little bit too certain about their assumptions and their ideas. I think that's very interesting that you say that, actually. I, I feel like it might be kind of presumed that maybe people on the spectrum might be a little bit more oblivious, maybe perhaps to like what's going on socially around them. But I have found in my own experience, at least, that if there's anything slightly different in the pattern of behavior of my friends, I can like notice, I can say, oh, so-and-so might be having an off day because like he's, he's not as chipper as he usually is. I just think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, in my newest, my newest book is on predictive mind, um, and it's all about how difficult it is for autistic brains to predict the world. But one of the, the things is, you know, every, you can talk about deficits and strengths, but I talk also always about two sides of the same coin. What we have discovered is that autistic people sometimes lack a model to explain what's happening, both inside their body, both inside other people. But the advantage of not being sure about your models is that you don't assume as much as other people. You ask, you observe, and then you question. And in that way, sometimes you get a more honest chance with autistic people because they don't assume what you are doing or feeling or thinking. So it's more like an, an objective way of looking at the world. You notice the behavior. Maybe you can be a little bit uncertain. I don't know, Katie, sometimes. Would she be a bit tired? Would she be a little bit upset? But you did observe the difference in the behavior. And autistic people, because they do not assume, pay more attention to their observations, I think. And therefore spot little differences in behavior that other people don't even see. It's like we always hear that people on the spectrum have a deficit in communication, have like are, are worse at communicating than neurotypicals. And maybe that's true for some people, but I found in my experience, with like say my sister and my brother are also on the spectrum. I, I think that at times we can be better at communicating and even over communicating. Say like if we're because we don't assume that somebody has something done or somebody knows to do something. If we're like organizing something. We don't assume that people know that I did something. So I think that it can almost be helpful in, in a way to be bad at communicating. And sometimes, you know, autistic people, because they, again, you could say because of lack of theory of mind, are quite direct in their communication. And that could sometimes be a little bit hurtful. Yeah. It could be experienced, but at <laughs> least it's long. honest. At least it's honest, isn't it? So they don't, sometimes it's not about daring to say what other people don't dare to say, but you know they they have an idea and they just communicate what they think, which is very open and direct. And in that way, you know, again, it's the way you you frame it. You can frame that as a deficit, and indeed, you know, sometimes people will be hurt by a very direct form of communication. And I think autistic people need to learn. Okay, sometimes being honest can be hurtful on the other hand you could also see it as at least there's somebody who says it all the other ones think it but don't tell it to me mm. so maybe i should be grateful that i learned something about myself because an autistic person is quite direct in this or her communication so people who are direct in their communication it's not just good or bad it's not just deficit or talent it's something what it is it is what it is and take the best part of it i would say Take the I best think, part of it. I think it's a, a good way of looking at it. I feel like 
especially if, if your like kid is just getting diagnosed, it, I'm sure it's probably very like overwhelming hearing, oh, so-and-so will find this difficult, they'll find this difficult, they'll find that difficult. I feel like not a lot is discussed about the strengths and even like the reframing of these difficulties to how they could be in certain contexts, like beneficial. Yeah. I think it, it's all about putting things in context. That's one of my favorite <laughs> sentences, as you might know by now. And I think we should put things in context. Just, okay, I'm the first one to acknowledge that there are autistic people who really have a tough life and that autism is not always a gift or a super talent. Let's not be, you know, in these one-liners. Let's be more nuanced and put things in context. And therefore, we should not just label something with just one label, saying what we could do is say we describe a certain behavior saying this is what we noticed. Okay, this can make it difficult in this and this context, but in this and this context, hmm, maybe that's something that is very useful. Hmm? So being direct and honest in your communication, well, that could lead to certain difficulties in certain contexts, but in other contexts, this is what people really needs so contextualized behaviors and then we don't need to have this discussion because i hate the discussion is autism a deficit is it a disorder is it a talent you know i think let's stop doing that let's start from okay this person what is the behavior that this or that person presents and let's put that behavior in context and maybe we need to to make someone on the autism spectrum a little bit more aware of the consequences of direct communication you can learn about that but maybe we should also say you know what this is a context where we really appreciate your meaning so please don't try to you know i don't know what the saying is but we say put these silk gloves on and be very careful just say what you think, but well, that's what we don't, need. Don't sugarcoat it. Uh, don't sugarcoat it. That's yeah. the expression I was looking for. Yeah. That primary school uh, idioms teaching really helped me out there. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. I, I suppose like the, the final thing that I found most interesting or like uh, a very good message, I think, from your talk was it's, it's okay not to know what you or how other people are feeling or what they're thinking, but that's completely fine. For people on the spectrum and people who aren't on the spectrum to feel that way. Yeah, I think that's one of the disadvantages of a diagnosis. I think the moment you get a diagnosis, everybody's looking at you with a magnifying glass and is, is observing you all the time and finding goals for you to put on your EIP or where to change your behavior or to teach you stuff. And, and sometimes we, I think we, we put the standards up higher for people with a diagnosis than for people without a diagnosis. Nobody's perfect on this planet. As I said, the, the empathy accuracy, neurotypicals overestimate their own empathy accuracy. Come on, let's be a little bit more gentle towards each other. And it's okay not to know. And it's also okay to make mistakes in theory of mind and theory of mind. You know, it's okay. Nobody should be perfect. And and you know, the moment you're you're you have an autism diagnosis. For instance, when, when you show so-called socially inappropriate behavior, you start insulting someone, you start hitting someone. Then in schools, suddenly there's a crisis meeting and we need to discuss that. And, and there's a big plan. Um, and I think, okay, if that happens on a daily basis, maybe you should do something about it. But if it happens once, is there any neurotypical that never got out of control in their lives? and started doing things that were socially inappropriate? Yeah, 
Okay, if it, again, if it happens on a daily basis, then we should have the team meeting. But let's just classify to say, okay, was a tough day. She lost control, he lost control, they lost control, whatever. Let's move on and, and give autistic people the opportunity to fail. Why need they to be perfect in all these social skills and communication skills? Everybody fails. So I think that that's a universal human right, not to be perfect. Because nobody is. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> um, is, is there anything else that you would uh, like to, to say on the thing? Any uh, maybe resources or anything you'd like to point people towards? I, I did mention Kelly Marl's work, did I, didn't I? I think so, yes. Yeah, that's, that's something that I can really recommend. And then uh, I think yeah, another resource, um, kind of advertising for myself, but I think the, the yeah, the book on context blind is, is something that put things into context and, you know, also the, the contextualizing of behaviors. When I wrote my first book in 96, I already at the end of the, the book, and that one is translated in English as well. This is the title. I have a column with uh, two columns and the left side says, these are the strengths of autistic brains and these are the strengths of non-autistic brains. If we could start from that framework, and saying rather than looking and blaming each other for not understanding and blaming for the deficits, neurotypicals are not good at this, autistic people. Let's let's look at our strengths that we have. Let's put things in context. Let's normalize things. I also think it's very important to normalize things. Hmm? Um, and normalize, I don't mean that we should all be normal, but to say, okay, nobody's perfect. That's a form of normalizing. So that we don't have this split again between Autistic people and neurotypicals, come on, we're all in the same boat. Let's 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 find each other and meet each other and su- make each other strong. That's what I want to give as a message. That's not a resource I now realize. <laughs> it's okay. There's also no shame in self-promotion. I guess that's what this <laughs> thank is <you>. for. <laughs> thank you. Um, but thank you so much for uh, having a, a chat with me. It was very it was lovely to meet you and hear your thoughts and, and things like that. And thanks again for your talk. It was very informative. Thank so. you very much, Kizzy. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'll stop. Hopefully we can again. meet someday. Hopefully. Maybe I'll, yeah. I'll fly out to Belgium. Okay, do that. <laughs> it's the most ugly country of the world, but there's a lot to do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Life in the Spectrum series, which is brought to you by the Lee Offaly Children and Young People Services Committee.